0: Hey folks, welcome back to the virtual world. I'm your host and software engineer, Ty. On this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Steve Klabnik and ask him a ton of questions about the Rust ecosystem. As always, please enjoy the conversation. All right, folks, it is July 24th, 2020, and it is 5.13 p.m. EST, and I'm sitting here with Steve Klapnick. How's it going? Did I did I say your name correctly?
1: Yes, you did. Hello. It's going pretty well. Um, it is funny. A lot of people do mispronounce my last name, um, but uh, you you nailed it, so good job.
0: Very cool. So um, I guess my first question, before we even get started with the personal stuff, I, I have something that I am just completely confused about. Sure. And that is, in general, the Rust ecosystem and how it's being built. A lot of the times you see folks like yourself and Alex Crichton mentioning that they're working on the Rust core team, but then they're working for other companies. So do people that work on Rust work for Mozilla? For Mozilla? Have you ever worked for Mozilla?
1: Yeah, so I, uh, I did work. I got on the core team before I worked at Mozilla, and then I worked at Mozilla for a while, and now I don't work at Mozilla anymore, and I'm still on the core team. So there's still, there's a lot of that going on. Um, basically, there's about, uh, I don't even know what the exact number is right now, but it's something on the order of like 200-ish people that are on the Rust team. And there's only like four or five people that are employed by Mozilla. So actually, like the Mozilla influence is significantly less than it used to be and also kind of less than most people assume. Um, but you'd have to sort of like really be paying attention to, to know that. So I think that's a that's a great question. But yes, there's definitely like mozilla is definitely a big benefactor of rust both historically and today but is like ultimately a minority in how Rust is kind of run Um, there's obviously some small like asterisks and caveats to that like for example most of the people that work on Rust uh, that are not at Mozilla aren't paid to do so full-time and the people who are paid to do so are full-time so there's obviously some practical kind of questions but from a strictly like governance speaking uh, perspective Mozilla doesn't have any influence that is not accessible to anyone else
0: Okay. Cool. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. So uh, I'm a little I'm a little confused about one thing there. Do do they pay folks that are not employed by them full time to continue working on Rust and contributing?
1: There. Are sometimes contracts available where people who do freelance work will be paid by Mozilla to do something specific. So a good example of this historically is cargo was initially implemented because Mozilla contracted Yehuda and Carl in my understanding to do that work, and they were like then able to you know put full- time effort into it temporarily. Um, so that does happen from time to time.
0: Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so uh, you said there's like four people employed by Mozilla right now working on it full time, and even if there's a couple contractors, still that's that's a very small portion of 200 people that would be working on the uh, the language. So totally. would you say that they don't have a ton of influence nowadays? Like I, I would think that most people probably, and maybe this is just me making this mistake,
1: but I think a lot of people still view Mozilla as like the uh, the kind of the
0: owners spiritually of Rust.
1: Yeah. yeah, I, I definitely do not think you were the only person that thinks this for sure. And like, it is definitely true. Uh, I think spiritual is a good word about it. Um, the, there's like a, so it's kind of interesting to like slightly broaden this before I get into the details. There's actually like a pretty big debate between programming language people on whether a new language can succeed without corporate backing in some form, because just like building a language And all the stuff that people expect out of a language today just takes so much time and so much effort that it's really, really difficult to get going without funding of some kind. And the easiest way to do that is, of course, companies because they have money because that's what companies do. Um, A lot of the languages we use today were not started by companies, but they were also started in what feels like a totally different time, which is the mid-90s. And so, you know, it's like interesting to think about when you're starting a language today, like whether or not, you know, you need a company to back you and like all these other kinds of other things. But anyway, regardless of that kind of debate, like, you know, Mozilla definitely like was the sponsor of the Rust Project for a really long time. But also one kind of interesting, unique thing about Mozilla and also the people who were working on Rust is they understood that if Rust was a Mozilla only technology it wouldn't have the same success as if it was something kind of broader and Mozilla in and of itself kind of doesn't really like to control things in my experience like they're they kind of have the sort of open source thing in their DNA so they tend not to be super controlling of stuff they're involved in and so there was like specific effort made in order to like put rust under a sort of style of governance that was more open so while uh, in the early days you know there were a lot of people involved that weren't uh, or that were only at Mozilla eventually like once it grew to a certain size there were non Mozilla people kind of added so I think whenever um, so when Yehuda and I were both added to the core team in 2014, and my memory says roughly, like, at the time, the core team was, like, eight people, and so six of them were Mozilla, and then there was me and Yehuda um, as non-Mozilla people, so that ratio was much different than it looks today, Um, and uh, so, yeah, like, it's it's definitely true that they had a big influence, and also, you know, regardless of the strict numbers and how the numbers works out with like the governance of the language and the project in general, um, Mozilla importantly paid a lot of bills that mattered to the Rust project for a long time. So like the website and crates.io. Or were hosted, you know, on Heroku and Mozilla footed the bill for that and continues to foot the bill for some of that. Um, you know, we had S3 bills for a long time that are now being comped by Amazon, but for a while Mozilla paid those. So there's other like monetary costs that aren't strictly speaking just salaries of people that Mozilla has handled. Um, legal, Mozilla Legal has, you know, helped out when we've had legal questions because. Every project that grows to a certain size ends up having some sort of legal issues, uh, you know, in whatever capacity. Um, And so things like that. But uh, yeah, like there are a lot of other companies that are contributing uh, resources monetarily, as well as paying, uh, you know, helping out with people and giving them part time and things like that. and so uh, it's it's definitely grown a lot. One of the topics we've sort of like asked is like, do we need a foundation for Rust? And this is kind of a big internal discussion on whether or not we should have an explicit legal entity that's, you know, separate from all these individual companies because, uh, you know, it just like feels more neutral. One way in which Mozilla technically does own Rust, um, and while they've been totally benevolent so far, in theory, you know, they could not be, is the name and logo of both Rust and cargo are trademarked. And so that trademark is held by the Mozilla Corporation. And so one of the goals of setting up a foundation would be to move that into like a truly neutral place. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but that's kind of like a there's lots of good reasons and there's lots of bad reasons to have foundations. And so it's not a simple question for sure.
0: Gotcha. Okay. At some point here in the next couple of moments, I'm going to commit a horrible interview sin where I (laughs) totally cut back from the topic and move towards more personal stuff so we can talk about you a little bit. But before that, I just have one last question about Rust. I've been having some discussions on Twitter and Reddit and whatnot lately about Rust. And there seems to be a a group of people, mostly in the C and C++ camps, that still view Rust as sort of like this Pinocchio language. So is that true, or is Rust kind of a real boy now?
1: Uh, I was going to ask what you meant by Pinocchio language, but now that you said the real boy now thing, I get it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, as always, this comes down to, like, you know, where... Like you are, there's this kind of this uh, this William Gibson, I believe it was quote that I've always found really interesting, which is like the future is here, but it's not evenly distributed. And like that was like said about technology in general, but I also think this is true for things like programming languages. I mean, there are some places in which maybe Rust is not yet ready for you. For example, if you work in aerospace, um, maybe you need certain kinds of certifications that the Rust compiler doesn't have. And so it's just literally not actually usable to you yet um there are actually some aerospace applications of rust but uh, whatever like not everything is super regulated but just like there are places in which rust is not actually relevant however the number of places in which it is is increasing and growing and like if you look at you know a lot of people talk about the fang companies uh facebook amazon apple netflix google some people add microsoft in there now it's kind of like a growing (laughs) acronym uh all of those companies, with the exception of Netflix, use Rust in a significant, like actual product capacity for their business. Um, and so, like when you have the largest tech companies that are using Rust for at least one product, like I personally say that it's a real thing. Um, you know, uh, I am now at a company that's using Rust for basically everything. So, you know, obviously, only some people, uh, you know, are able to always do exactly, uh, you know, work with a the language they want or whatever. But there are an increasing number of Rust jobs and companies and people using it for real things. So, to me, it's super real. Um, but like, I think that you know, that question is definitely based on whatever you're doing and whatever your random opinion is. Um, so, it's it's definitely interesting. <laughs>
0: For sure, and I think I think Rust is definitely a lot more real than something like maybe Closure Script, where you still have people like David Nolan who are kind of spearheading that effort as an ecosystem, and they're totally using it on a day day to day basis, where you know that's like the only thing they have to worry about for for whatever project they're currently working on. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's what the rest of the world is experiencing. Um, but I think Rust is a little different than
1: that not every language is going for super broad adoption either um so you know that there also is like not not everyone is choosing to shoot for those same goals so i think also you have to remember that when you're talking about these kind of things too
0: for sure and somebody said something about you know rust is totally not going to replace c++ in the next x years or whatever and i think i think they might be wrong there was a, there was a really great bob martin talk uncle bob martin i don't know if you've watched it called the future of programming where he talks about the fact that the number of programmers in the world doubles roughly every five years. And if that's true, and there's a lot of sort of negative implications of that for us as a as an industry and our level of uh, maturity, uh, but if that is true, then aren't the people that are new to the scene who aren't kind of like indoctrinated into their ways with a specific language or a specific ecosystem, if they're building some system that needs to both like run fast, like a systems system, you know, not not a web system, but something that needs security and speed and efficiency, but also safety, why would they choose something like C++ and C over Rust, especially with the advent of, of Wazzy probably making legacy code bases really easy to consume in the next you know, five years or so?
1: It's, it's really complicated, and uh, I, I am familiar with that, although I am definitely not uh, a fan of Uncle Bob in general. But I do think that, like, that the, the like the thing that you're talking about definitely gets to part of this which is i don't think anything ever gets replaced so to me, like saying like, is, is Rust going to replace C++ is kind of like a, a, a malformed sentence. Like it almost doesn't even make logical sense. But yeah, no, but I think what you're, what you're talking about though, is like, it is true that as things move on and grow, you know, for people like legacy systems will always exist, but there's always the question of what gets chosen for new things. Right. And, yes. That's uh, and the so- question. And so that's definitely true. However, like you know, there's lots of reasons to do things in lots of different languages. I do think that Rust is going to be chosen more often for these projects more and more in the future. Uh, and like I definitely think that that uh, if you look at the overall share of C and C++, it used to be that they were chosen for like basically everything, especially in the Unix world. And now that is you know changed with even things like Python taking over some of the things that in the 70s and 80s you would have used C for, and now you know you would use that. And instead um so i do think that we'll see rust be chosen more often however like you know not everybody likes everything and so there is just some people who will prefer c and c++ even if you know you could argue that in some objective sense rust has a benefit or whatever um you know there's some people who will like that regardless and so uh you know i don't think like uh it's not something I particularly personally worry a ton about because as long as there is enough people doing Rust that the people who want to do it are able to do it, that's what I care about more than the like overall score total of languages or whatever, um, if that makes any sense.
0: For sure. Hey, going back to something you said, uh, Uncle Bob, that that talk is the only thing I've ever seen. That's like my only frame of reference about this guy. Would you gotcha. like to talk about maybe why you're not a big fan or, or is that something you don't want to talk? get too much
1: into? Well... We can talk about it really briefly. I don't know if it'll be interesting for your podcast. And I know the things that you care about, you may actually end up just like slightly scrapping this whole part of the discussion because of it. But actually there's been a lot of controversy about Uncle Bob recently because he uh, basically like he's an old dude and he says and does a lot of old dude things. And he specifically is like Black Lives Matter sucks and like is very like Socially regressive and public about it. So his software opinions on their own are kind of controversial, but especially recently, socially, he has put himself out there in a way that lots of people are like. What are you doing, and why are you continuing to talk about this? So, if you're not familiar with those aspects of his overall thing, like you should just know that that's the case. Um, you know, I don't totally know exactly what your personal politics, etc., are, but uh, you know, that's just like lately it's become a thing. Um, so, uh, so yeah, the, the the biggest criticism of Uncle Bob, purely outside of the social realm, is that he has basically done a, a lot of consulting work and in a specific kind of niche, but he generalizes his opinions on how to write software to things that are outside of that. And a lot of people find it to be not like hyper compelling for that reason. Like he really hates static typing, for example, and his arguments against static typing are things that a lot of people find to be not particularly uh, great. So anyway, that's just like some small amount of, of background. Um, yeah, I don't know. No, I do. I actually
0: find all of that really interesting. Uh, I'm totally very socially, I would say, progressive. So uh,
1: I thought that that know. was the case, but I wasn't totally sure. And that's kind of why I sort of brought it up is because <laughs> I, I figured you might uh, yeah, care to know about that. But uh, anyway, that's, that's kind <laughs> yeah, of the, the uh, current state of things.
0: The tagline for the podcast is, you know, it's a podcast about VR, technology, uh, inclusivity and love. So totally. that that is kind of like balled up into it, and actually, the first uh, couple of episodes, we, me and a couple of uh, old coworkers were really heavily focused on like diversity in the uh, in the industry. Totally. And since, since we're getting towards a more a more personal note, let me take a step back and like hit some of these personal note questions. I like to start with some random stuff in case there's listeners that like myself have watched a bunch of your talks and kind of just want to get to know you a little bit better. Let's start really simple. What's your favorite color? Purple. Very, very good choice. That is also mine. Although these days I'm kind of
1: getting pulled more towards the pink camp. Nice. Um, <laughs> what are your hobbies? So lately, uh, my hobbies have been uh, baking bread. Uh, Which is a very fashionable uh, hobby at the moment, but uh, you know, it's a good, a good quarantine hobby. I used to work in a pizza shop uh, for a very long time, a long time ago, and I really enjoyed working with dough. But we didn't actually make it ourselves. I worked for like a chain, and so the dough was pre shipped. So it's kind of been a fun way to like reconnect with my past as well as my present, uh, and also it's delicious. So that's been, I'd say, my my primary hobby. Uh, I'm also like. Uh, getting back into playing video games sometimes. So I do a little bit of that, Uh, but yeah, bread breaking is definitely my, my current big thing.
0: Okay. What's your, what's the best bread that you've made so far?
1: Uh well, I'm I mostly have been trying to figure out uh like the right ratios and lengths of time for various things. So I pretty much mostly bake either white bread or whole wheat bread or sometimes a little bit of rye tossed in there. But uh it's all sourdough stuff. So I'm pretty much just like making variations of the same recipe to try to like sort out, you know, what the right way is. One of the interesting things about something that's fermented is that the process is very like active. And so even if you just like take a recipe and you follow it exactly the way that you would have to follow it online, if your oven is a little different than maybe the one that they use, then maybe it doesn't cook quite as well or, you know, whatever. Uh, Maybe the temperature in your place is like a little hotter or a little colder than whatever theirs is. You have to like learn how to adjust the lengths of time that you do various things and stuff like that. So I mostly just been like making the same kinds of recipes over and over and just varying all these kind of other things to see, see what works.
0: Very interesting. All right, moving on. What is your what is your dev environment slash platform of choice? What kind of computer are you using? What's your shell? What's your yeah. editor, things like that?
1: So um, a couple of years ago, I made the switch to Windows. And so I'm actually like a, an all Windows person these days, which is kind of fun. Um, I originally was a Mac person for a very long time and then spent some time doing Linux, but probably the last like four years-ish, I've been all Windows. Um, so uh, I I mostly spend most of my day in VS Code uh, with a Vim plugin because I'm a Vim user at heart. But VS Code has so many cool things in it that you just shove the Vim plugin in there and you get the best of both worlds. So that's tons of fun. Um, and I use this shell called New Shell, which is written in Rust. It's cross-platform, works great everywhere. Uh, it's kind of like... Sort of an interesting take on the idea of like what if a shell operated with structured data? So instead of it just being text, you can like pass around actual like full JSON or YAML or TOML or whatever blobs between programs and lets you do some really interesting kind of things. So it's sort of a little new, but uh, I think it's a lot of fun and I generally uh, enjoy using it. And then um, I actually built a desktop from scratch a couple months ago for the first time in about a decade so i am using that as my primary development machine before that i used basically lenovo laptops for the last couple of years so x1 carbon t460x that kind of stuff
0: awesome uh, all great choices and obviously you said that you're you're doing um, a bunch of uh, rust work full time now i'm curious uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your new employer i know you just started yeah. with them a little bit ago
1: totally. So I work at a company called oxide computer uh, and uh, we're sort of still a really new kind of startup, but um, basically the uh, the goal of the company is to build a computer, hence the name being oxide computer company, but specifically we're building servers that you would put in a data center. So you will basically like buy a rack uh, from us with servers in them, and then you will be able to run your server stuff on our racks. Um, And uh, so, so that's kind of like the problem that we're tackling, and there's a bunch of reasons why that's kind of like a, an interesting problem, and all these sort of things. But uh, the the fun part, the name Oxide is a reference to the Rust language, because basically Rust is kind of the default programming language at Oxide. So my day job right now is working on some embedded stuff that's going to be part of the rack of servers, and all of the all of that code is written in Rust. So it's uh, that's sort of what I'm up to these days.
0: Very very cool. So, what is your background? Uh, did you Do you have a degree? Did you start as a developer? Were you always kind of like moving towards programming? Or did you start with different
1: origins? Yeah. So, I grew up on a farm. Uh, and uh, basically, my dad and his dad and his dad were all beef cattle farmers. So, that's what I started to do. But... Uh, Basically, as a kid, I got introduced to computers because one of my uncles was a computer programmer, and so he brought a computer to my grandparents' house, his parents, to show them what he did. I happened to be there, and so I played with it and was like super, super hooked, and so I decided I did not want to be a farmer, I wanted to do computer stuff. And so um, I've pretty much been messing around with them ever since I did get a bachelor's in computer science, but just barely, I actually dropped out of my degree to do a startup. And then eventually that imploded like most startups do. And uh, I wanted to go get an English graduate degree. So I went back and I finished my bachelor's in CS in order to go to English grad school and I got accepted, but I didn't go for some other reasons. So uh, yeah, I've had like a weird winding complicated history, Um, but uh, yeah, largely like originally self-taught uh and then the degree definitely like helped a little bit too
0: for sure and actually i think uh I, nobody that i've talked to so far has had sort of like a very typical experience which i think it's <laughs> sure. really interesting like if for some reason all the people that i find the most compelling uh have kind of an interesting background totally uh, I, so mean, I think almost cool.
1: everybody has an interesting background in some way even if they you know had like a traditional educational experience a lot of times something else is interesting like we all have you know stuff going on.
0: <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So I, I read a little, I read, uh, you know, ton of your blogs and I read a little bit uh, the other
1: day and I was curious, was Ruby your first love? So I, I would say that it was my first like a major one, but uh, it's also, you know, like I programmed a lot before I started programming in Ruby. So Ruby was probably the like sixth or seventh, eh, maybe, maybe fifth, I don't know, I used definitely at least three or four languages before Ruby that I really, really enjoyed. Um, But Ruby was kind of like, Ruby was the language that I chose to start wanting to do professionally. And so that, like, definitely gave me, uh, you know, a certain, uh, you know, enjoyment out of it. And also just in general, like, I think Ruby is, if if Ruby is your cup of tea, which it is definitely not everyone's, but if you like Ruby, I think that most people either love it or hate it, basically. There's not a lot of people who don't care about Ruby much, if they've used it at all. Um, So I happen to really, really love it a lot. Um, I actually have a tattoo of the Ruby Ruby. um, So... Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> I also have a tattoo of Pearl Camel because I like Pearl before Ruby. Um, and I don't have a Rust tattoo yet, but I always joke that it's because I only get tattoos of languages I don't use anymore. So someday when I move on from Rust to something else, uh, that's when I'll get my Rust tattoo.
0: <laughs> um, well, I hope I never see the Rust tattoo come out. <laughs> Appreciate it. Okay. Uh, so how did you transition to working with Rust in Mozilla. Did you were you like a really really early adopter of Rust or yeah. did did you get an opportunity with Mozilla that pushed you towards it?
1: No, so I was I was a really really early adopter in a hobby sort of sense. So basically I wrote the first tutorial by a, like the first big tutorial for Rust that was for, not from Mozilla itself. So like there was the stuff that came with the language, the tutorial that like the team had made to explain how to use it. But I was the first person that wrote like a big, it was actually like a 50 page book basically um, called Rust for Rubyists, because I love alliteration. Uh, And uh, so I basically decided to write down what I was learning about Rust as I learned it and kind of turned that into a tutorial. And so uh, that was kind of like the big work that I initially did. And then I basically just worked on an open source way where I was really, Really enjoying using the language, and so I just started sending in pull requests. And after enough pull requests, they're like, "Hey, do you want to do this?" And so I was like, "Sure." And so uh, then I started like, uh, you know, working on it more. And then eventually, um, basically, like in the sort of like lead up to Rust 1.0, they knew that they really needed good polished documentation. And I was basically doing most of the documentation work. And so one of those contracts kind of came available. And so I started doing contracting. And then whenever it was demonstrated that I could like actually do a good job and that they needed me more than just for a couple months, um, that's whenever I like ended up getting an actual job there. Um, So it definitely was me using Rust beforehand um, and then got the job rather than the other way around.
0: Okay, so something that you said in one of your talks, I'm forgetting which one exactly, because I've watched like, yeah, I don't know, seven of them now or something. <laughs> Thanks. Um, do you think Rust is more difficult than C++?
1: So I think that that the answer can be both yes and no, depending on the details and also on who you are. So sort of, there's like a trade-off that's involved. I think that it is easier to get something that is right in Rust, but I think that it is harder to get something in Rust. So like... One of the things that's like interesting about the the trickiness of like having a really strong type system is that you know uh, when when something is really strong it rejects a lot of the stuff that you kind of like try to do, um, and so it's really easy to kind of like knock something out that works most of the time. Whenever you have systems that don't have those kinds of like really strong checks. Um, but it also means that you spend a lot more time like debugging and if you care about correctness like there's lots of you know sort of ways you can get it wrong and so it's like easier to get something but it's harder to get something right and so rust it's like really hard to get something but when you do it's almost always right so like uh i spend very little time debugging my Rust programs. I don't spend no time because you obviously can write bugs in Rust. Um, but it tends to be takes me take me longer to get the first thing. But then once I've done it, I've done it. Whereas with something like C or C++, which I'm admittedly not as good at as I am at Rust, especially these days, um, I would get something going a lot faster. But it would take me more time to like take that something and make it something that was actually like complete and good and so i think that's like a lot of the core kind of like trade off um yeah
0: yeah cool uh, what do you, do you think that this is a paradigm issue or an actual actual complexity issue like brett victor talks a lot about people in the past who were doing assembly sort of level code and didn't want to get into anything like c Um, And even people that were writing binary and didn't want to get into assembly. So is it actually a complexity issue or is it a paradigm issue? Like would people that are newcomers to programming as a whole maybe pick Rust up just fine because they don't have sort of the burden of their past knowledge on top of that?
1: Yeah, I definitely think this is a super interesting question. And I like part of it is a inherent complexity issue. There's a lot of things about Rust that if we were willing to relax on some of the requirements that we would be able to make a language that was much easier to understand. Without boats is a person who's written a bunch about this. It's like very interesting, um, and they've actually said they're gonna put out another post, I think, pretty soon about this. But um, basically, like, there's some places where Rust, because we have this really strong commitment to performance specifically, um, that we basically like expose some things that if that most of the time you don't care about, and it would actually be significantly easier if you were like willing to be a little bit slower. Um, So I definitely think that there's some aspects of it that are kind of paradigm, but also I think some of it, too, is like different people struggle to learn Rust for different reasons. And so Rust draws on kind of like at least two, maybe three different areas of programming that are very different from each other. And if you have a very broad background, you may have some familiarity with those. And so it's a little easier to get going. But if you only have a familiarity with one of them, you kind of have to learn the others at the same time. And that can feel really weird Um, So, for example, like a lot of features like Rust's enums are a thing that's very common in functional languages, but they're not very common in systems languages, whereas the sort of like commitment to performance and stuff like the pointer versus value distinction and all that kind of stuff, that's in like systems languages, but is not really in functional languages. And so if you've like written some OCaml and some Haskell and you've written some C, then you may not have as many new concepts to learn as somebody who say only written C or only written Haskell. And so like that's I think one of the other interesting kind of challenges is a lot of it is also sort of like Rust takes from so many different places that uh, if, if if you haven't gotten some broad Um, Experience which is like totally fine just means that you have to kind of like fill in some of those gaps Um, I find this also comes up in syntax a lot too Like a lot of people complain about rust syntax But for totally different reasons based on wherever they're like coming from um, which is kind of interesting
0: Okay, cool. Hope that leads me to another uh, quick idea I'm just curious and hopefully I word this in a way that it actually makes a little bit of sense sure Uh, when it comes to both Lisp any dialect and Haskell, do you think that they are worthwhile to learn for all programmers, and do you think that they are worthwhile and helpful to learn for people that are specifically targeting a future with Rust?
1: So I, in general, if you ask me should I learn a programming language for no matter what that language is, I will tell you yes, because almost all of them help you understand the world a little bit differently, and so like I haven't written Haskell in 10 years, but uh, learning it really helped me understand some things and definitely like changed the way that I wrote Ruby code at the time. Um, same thing with all the different variants of Lisp. Um, and so if you have the time and capacity, I definitely think it's always interesting to learn new languages, um, like no matter what, cause it'll make you a more well-rounded developer and will just like help you understand, you know what things are good and useful from other parts of programming and all sorts of stuff. So I, I definitely think it's, it's worthwhile um, if you have the ability to.
0: For sure, that's cool. OK, so this one is a little bit more broad. I know you've talked a lot about serverless architecture and things like it, WebAssembly, um, and especially WebAssembly system interface. I think that's going to be kind of huge. It It probably, in my opinion, will even have a bigger impact than just WebAssembly by itself. But I'm curious, what do you foresee for the future of the web and kind of Rust's place in that?
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I'm not 100% sure uh, there there are like multiple possible futures. Um, it seems like we're heading on one where sort of the web browser and the operating system tend to merge uh, and like the web becomes a full application platform for not just web applications, but any kind of application that you can think of. Um, however, there's like some kind of like a roadblocks that have sort of happened uh, due to some like security things and some other shenanigans involved. So I definitely think that's like one interesting path forward on the web. There's also definitely a lot of people who push back pretty strongly against this idea that want the web to remain purely a document platform. And I think a lot of those people are only developers. Like I don't find a lot of people who are not developers who even think about this this way. they just kind of like, I use websites. Um, So uh, I tend to think that the web will grow more and more ability and capability over time. And developers will want to be able to use those kinds of things to build richer experiences for people that want to actually use the stuff. Um, and so for me, like a lot of that comes down to WebAssembly because there's sort of like, you know, uh, I think the high level language, low level language distinction is like a little fuzzy for sure. But um, the reason the WebAssembly was like added to the web platform is because sort of we needed a lower level language than JavaScript to be on the web. And I think Rust is one of the languages that's best targeted for WebAssembly work um, for a variety of reasons, both the language itself but also because the Rust team cares about this and has put in a lot of time and effort to make Rust work well with WebAssembly, um, and so I think that those two things combined means that it's in a really good place to be there for when people need to do those kinds of things. I still think it's a little too early to see if it will actually like super succeed, um, because like WebAssembly is at that kind of thing where there's only a couple places that are using it for real production things, and a lot of it is kind of still in the experimentation and hobbyist phase. So who knows if it will actually like break out of that but i definitely think it has the ability to will it or not is another question that we'll just kind of have to see how it goes
0: for sure and i think for a lot of people this could be a frame of reference issue for myself but uh i kind of i look out and i see you know rust and it has kind of mozilla spearheading it which you know we kind of talked about the fact that they may that may not really be the case but it's got this huge ecosystem people love the the language it has stuff like cargo kind of like is a, a first uh oh man first class first class yeah yeah sorry my brain kind of fell but but yeah so all of this stuff kind of makes it awesome N- not to mention the safety and and then you think about at least for me i think about c++ and like who's designing it and using it and i just sort of picture this dark room with like a huge metal table and a bunch of sith lords sitting around <laughs> it making like really evil decisions did you
1: drop or are you still there yeah, can you hear me? Oh, okay, cool. It's It sounded like your audio totally dropped after you said making big decisions and
0: then- No, no, that, that was just, that was basically the end of it. I just, uh, it's kind of interesting to, uh, I, I wonder what most people think about who's moving C++ forward and if that's even happening and like, do they care about WebAssembly?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. I only know about this from the outside in because I try to pay attention and I, I know some people that are part of the standards bodies. Um, so like, but the, the, the interesting thing about the C++ standardization process is that is it's there's a very, very broad number of constituents that need to, that like have their views represented on the standards committee. And that means that it can be very difficult to get things done because you have to satisfy literally everyone. And that's also the greatest strength of what they're doing doing is that, you know, you can run C++ anywhere from like a mainframe to, you know, uh, your phone to like microcontrollers to like everywhere. Um, And so like uh, WebAssembly is, I think, seen more as like a tooling concern rather than the language level concern. Like the people that are working on the language itself are really only cared about the language because that's like historically, especially... um, while people who do the implementation work are on the language committee, the language committee only worries about the language, and so that's why there's no like standard package manager or standard build system or things like that because their focus is very narrow. Um, and so Rust definitely takes an attitude that like there's things the Rust project is broader. So like the language folks are one team as part of the Rust project, and that the project has responsibility for more things than just the language itself. Um, But those, you know, all those things have like pros and cons for sure. Um, So I I would say that like, yeah, the C++ landing standard folks, they don't care about WebAssembly, but that's kind of because like it's sort of outside of the scope of what they're trying to work on. Um, There are definitely people who are involved with the committee who care a lot about WebAssembly and do a lot of the implementation work necessary to, you know, make uh, MScript and other things work well.
0: For sure. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Do you want to talk about the Actix web debacle at all?
1: uh yeah i mean we could talk about it a little bit i guess um like i think that uh it's it's some background for those uh maybe of your listeners who don't know all the details there was There's not drama super often in the Rust world, but uh, no one's perfect, and we have our own sort of situations. And uh, Rust specifically has this feature called Unsafe that kind of lets you get around Rust's guarantees. And as long as you do that responsibly, everything is fine. But if you don't, bad things can happen. And so a lot of people are therefore like very worried about people doing this like inappropriately. And so... There was this project called Actix Web that was a web framework, and uh, it turns out that it used a bunch of unsafe code inside, and it used it in some ways that were questionable. I'll put it that way, at least. And so there was a big argument between the maintainer and random people, and I think it got way too heated and way too impersonal, maybe a little strong, but like the point is just that like it should have just been a discussion about the technology and not like a huge, giant argument. But uh on the internet, it's easy to have arguments, and so uh, after a lot of arguing, the maintainer is like, "I don't want to do this anymore," and basically walked away. Um, some other people picked it up, and so the project is still going. But uh, you know, it was kind of like a, a an interesting part of Rust's growth in that we it's like uh, not everything is always great, uh, and sometimes bad things happen. And I think this is an area that's like not exactly the Rust world being at its best, basically. Um, So, yeah, because there is, like, some legitimate concern about using a thing that, you know, doesn't work as it's supposed to. But due to some, like, very specific technical details I don't really want to get into, there was a question about, like, is this a problem in practice or just in theory? And a lot of the argument, I think, was about uh, how bad of a situation it was in actual practice and different people's opinions about that topic. And then also just, like, people being like really upset when maybe it should have been slightly more dispassionate, put it that way.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think that that's a really good summary because mostly I just wanted, you know, to fill in people who may not have uh, known about that particular uh, issue.
1: Totally. And it's definitely like, it's definitely an, an unusual situation. Like part of also why it's notable is because it is not normal for this to like happen. Um, but just like as Rust grows incredibly and we add more and more people, uh, you know, conflicts inevitably are going to sort of like occur. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's kind of wild to chastise somebody who's doing work for free
1: definitely and there's 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 definitely a fine line there for sure and uh i i definitely am generally on the side that like people should not have uh done that so <laughs> it is what it is
0: i know that we're running out of uh time on paper here so let me ask you a couple more relaxed questions um as someone who is uh, at least on the surface very like fairly well traveled at this point what do you think about the software scene in other parts of the world
1: uh i think it's great there i have been definitely like Traveling a lot over the last uh, couple years, and I've been it's been really nice to be able to meet people from all over the world that are doing really cool things. And uh, you know, one of the things I really enjoy about traveling is that you learn how different we all are, and then another one is how much we're all really the same simultaneously, somehow. We're all also the same thing everywhere, but we're also completely different. and so there's definitely like i've met amazing developers in all, you know many parts of the world at this point and uh it's been uh it's been really great so i think it's it's also like I don't know, just like there is like uh, it's kind of fun uh, because we can't travel because of COVID, but like I'm going to be speaking remotely at a conference on Monday that was originally supposed to be in Poland, uh, you know, and just like we're still able to connect online, even though, you know, the world is a little weird right now. So the fact that the like development community is global is just really great. Um, I'm a super big fan of it.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. What's your favorite place that you've been so far?
1: It's really, really tough. uh, But I think that probably the the answer I would go with most of the time is uh, Berlin, Germany. um, It's definitely one of my favorite places. I also really, I went to Taiwan recently for the first time and really, really liked it. Um, And there's tons of places around the world that I've been super psyched to go and go back to more often. Um, But I think that that Berlin is sort of my default uh, favorite place.
0: That's awesome. Okay. Here's a, here's a speed stack choice questionnaire for you. All All right. right. You don't, you can justify this as much or as little as you want for each one, but just, I'm going to give you like a very generic sort of idea for what an app could be and then ask what you would use for it. All right. Command line tool.
1: Uh, Rust. And that's because you get a single binary and there's some good libraries to help you do it well.
0: Okay. Embedded system of some kind.
1: Definitely Rust, because this is literally what I do in my job, and I think it's like a, the safety guarantees and the performance are really important and embedded. For sure. And operating system? Same deal, uh, although I do think there are some interesting reasons to choose C sometimes. Um, I'm more interested in Rust personally because of said guarantees, but, uh, but like the for- if I had to formally verify it, I would probably choose C, but if I was just making a thing that I was not planning on formally verifying, I would choose Rust.
0: Okay. Desktop application?
1: This one is really, really tricky. Actually, Um, I'm not 100% sure because I have not written that many desktop applications. I definitely would be very tempted to choose Electron um, because even though as a user it can get kind of a little complicated, uh, being able to use web technologies to build desktop applications is really nice because desktop GUI toolkits are always really hard to use. So I'm going to go Electron uh, and and JavaScript, even though I'm not 100% sure I'm sold on that choice.
0: For sure, I think there's there's actually kind of an interesting uh, competitor in that space that's fully written in Rust now called Towry. They broke off of the uh, the Quasar team a while back.
1: Yeah, I've heard the name, but I don't know a lot about it. So that's that's definitely cool. I have to check it out more.
0: I think they have some cool stuff coming. So they they might uh, they might kind of
1: force themselves into your frame of reference pretty soon. <laughs> cool. Um, a game. So, I think that this sort of depends on the platform because many game platforms require that you use a specific thing. If we're just choosing a general PC game, then uh, I would probably want to pick a library and use the language it's written in. So, it'd probably end up being C or Rust, uh, depending on what I was doing.
0: Do you think, quick side tangent, do you think that Rust is very easy to interop with something like C? I've, I've seen a lot of different bindings for C libraries.
1: Yeah, it's definitely easy to interop with C. It's very difficult to interop with C++, but the reason why it's easy is because Rust being partially initially made to improve Firefox Firefox is like a 14 million line or something ridiculous like that. Maybe it's more like five, but multiple millions of lines of C++ code. And so Rust needed to be able to talk to C and to some as much extent as possible C++ in order to work in that environment. So it definitely uh, works. Games are tricky because the thing that I was talking earlier about how it's easier to get something going in other languages is a big benefit in games. So that would be a good reason to like pick something else over top of it. But uh,
0: yeah, totally. Cool. Typical web app, a la Fiverr or Patreon, maybe with a little bit of web RTC?
1: Ruby on Rails, without question. Um, Largely because libraries exist. There's a million blog posts to explain how to do everything. And uh, you don't need to worry about the performance until you have enough users that you can afford to do something else later. But uh, Rails definitely is the the default go-to choice.
0: Interesting. Okay. And lastly, cross-platform mobile app.
1: So the I think the best way to make cross-platform mobile apps is to write the core of it in Rust and then write the native part in the language that's native to the platform. So you do like the UI in Swift or Java or uh, whatever else, and then you put whatever logic makes sense to be common um, in a shared library that you use in both things.
0: And you would just, you can consume that as Rust or would you use a WebAssembly? Yeah,
1: for example, Cloudflare's 1.1.1.1 app on mobile um, is written in this way. So the networking stuff is all written in Rust, but the UI stuff is all written in Swift on Mac OS or Apple iOS and uh, Java or maybe even Colin. I think it's just Java on Android.
0: That's crazy. Okay, yeah, that's that's something I'll have to look into as well. Yeah, Okay. And I I know we're basically out of time here, so I will just leave you with uh, one last question. How do you feel about the typical coding interview?
1: I find them incredibly stressful um i i definitely uh it's, it's something i'm not a super big fan of mostly because there's just so much pressure and people don't perform well under pressure i know that i often get in my head about things and end up doing a lot worse than i think i do naturally but i'm not sure what else to do either so i i really just find the whole thing frustrating because i don't think we've figured out how to do it in any reasonable kind of fashion
0: that makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, I don't want to keep you too much. So uh, I just want to wrap up by saying thank you so much for, for coming on. Hopefully I can convince you to maybe do it again in the future.
1: Totally. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks again for listening, folks. Make sure to stay tuned for new episodes throughout this month. I'll be interviewing Alex Crichton and Eric Norman in the coming weeks, as well as having some conversations with previous guests, including Ben and Jay. As always, you can contact me on Twitter at TYTR underscore dev. Thanks again. This is Ty signing off.